have Lizzo stuck in my head all day. All day. Because I've been watching um, Forensic Files. So every time it says, took a DNA test, I feel the need to yell, turns out I'm a bad bitch. Every time. I don't think I've ever... I have never heard a song by her. Oh my god. It's a strange world where I am more up on current music than you are. <laughs> now, can you recite Baby Shark? I heard it once, and I realized that was the devil's playing oh my a God, trick yes. on humanity, and I noped the fuck right on out of that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm gonna uh, agree with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Kill me now. Welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And welcome to the show. We're mm-hmm. back together in the same locale. Yes. After a week of recording by distance and Andy's perilous drive out to the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Canadian weather, man. Fun times. Again, I would rather drive in the snow. <laughs> Dan's like, you know, be careful. Coming back. It's supposed to be freezing rain. I'm like, what? I'm not... I'm not the type of person who's like, I'm not going to drive if it's... Like, it has to be pretty bad weather, yeah. as you are well aware yeah, yeah. from working with me, to me, for me to be like, I'm not coming in. Well, rational human Canadians are like that. Like, yeah. it's got to be bad. <laughs> because if you were like, oh, it's bad weather, I'm not going anywhere. You never leave your house from November, November through April, May. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I don't have time for that. Yeah. <laughs> Shit's got to get done, people. Mortgages to get paid, rent yeah. to get paid. Yeah, we got to just power through on that shit. <laughs> I am looking forward to the 6th of December. Contract up on that day? Yes, it is. That's only like another week. Yes. Next Friday? Yeah, next Friday. What's up, Ben? They have no need for me after that for a while. Like, yeah. Until they figure if the person's coming back, what they're exactly this job is going to be, because they're cutting down the number of in-person meetings again by half for next year. Mm. So, like, the 2020-2021 year right. for them. Um, it's weird because when you're a short-term contract and no one knows how long you're going to be there, yeah. it's not... They don't invest the time to get to know you. You don't really feel like you fit in. Yeah. Like, today I know that I'm, like, only there for another week and a half. So, they're like, oh, you don't have to come to staff meetings. I'm like, okay. Right. <laughs> but it's just, you don't feel like, like you're this, you don't fit. Yeah. You're just a temp at this point. Yeah. And I'm just temp and I get that. But it's it's weird. Like, I, I realized the last two short places I've worked, I need somewhere that has, like, a sense of friendship like i need to work with people that i can you know become like even not like but friendly with like i can't just work somewhere the last two places where i'm sitting at my desk either writing stories or just going out by myself like that's okay occasionally but i still need somewhere that like you have this was the breakthrough i had in therapy this week or last week was the place we worked together was like very much a family and we're still all friends like with those people and now it feels like we've gone off to other locales and there's a sense of isolation in those places yes especially like for me because like i'm an office of one i'm a department of one so it's even worse but like yeah i i know exactly what you mean like um the place that i got ceremoniously fired from their team unlike other teams that work in that uh at that place that seem um, to be very much like they go out for lunch, they do mm-hmm. things together. This team was seemed to be very much a separate, separate. Or, yeah. Like you do what you want, which is fine. You almost need that balance because, like, where we worked, everybody knew each other because a lot of us had worked together for so long. Yeah. We didn't always spend time together, but you still had one or two. Or you look, oh, I'm gonna go sit and chat with you while you're eating your lunch. Yeah. For 10, 15 minutes, catch up, and it's just you. I haven't had yeah. that and. Like, it's just like you said, like, I kind of need to figure out the next place I work, how to do that. Because I, I, I'm not very happy the last pl- two places. And yeah. um, it's starting to come out in home, too. Because, yeah. like, Dan said, I'm starting to retreat into myself a little bit. Yeah. 
which has just been so busy and it's just yeah so i'm like oh i need <laughs> like i've been off for a month and i'm gonna be off for like another month on stress leave so i completely get it <laughs> it's, it is it's a very isolating yeah. experience and uh yeah i think there were irritants of the place we worked together that made it unpleasant and not an enjoyable environment experience especially at the end like, yeah but when you weigh that against like the friendships that we did have and the networks that we did have, those irritants were like, oh my God, you cannot believe what this dummy said. <laughs> I know. And now I don't have anybody to be like, oh my yeah. God. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Miss you. And I, it's like, in the last few weeks have been so busy. Like we've hardly even mm-hmm. been texting, which is mostly me because I... Well, it's also me because I'm going through a massive yeah. depressive episode right now and like... Even the cats are getting a little bit of the silent treatment, so. <laughs> so, yeah, like, it's just, it's not even helping, like, yeah. <laughs> we're just even more isolated. It's bad. It's yeah. bad scene all around. It is. I'm looking forward to December 6th to that, and then, like, being able to be home and get shit packed up, because I have drywall. Yay! Creeping up on uh, moving at that point. Yeah, so. And Christmas and the kids and I think we have something like every weekend from More. now until <laughs> like I get I'm like becoming more and more self-isolated at this point that still sounds like a nightmare to me <laughs> with or without the depression it would still sound like a nightmare to me we just have a lot like it's just December right so we have a lot of stuff going on like this weekend we're swapping babysitting okay uh with Dan's cousin uh, so her daughter is coming and sleeping over at our place on Friday. Mm-hmm. So her and her her uh, partner can go out and celebrate their anniversary. And then we're taking the kids to Paw Patrol Live. Blah. I know. Uh, we we bid all the tickets as a like charity thing. And then um, you know the kids don't have to know that you won those tickets. We spend a lot of money on them. They're coming. It's called charity. Um. <laughs> But it's in the box, so at least it's self, somewhat self-contained. They can just sit out. Mm. They can't go too far. It's, you know, it's only about an hour. Um, and then we're going to drop our kids off and then her daughter. So we're taking all of them to Paw Patrol. <sighs> and my sister-in-law and her daughter's coming. So there's going to be a big group of us. The kids will enjoy it. Then we're going to drop the kids off at um, Dan's cousins. And then they're going to stay there all night. We're going to Dan's Christmas party. Uh-huh. And we're staying overnight at the hotel. Yeah. And then we got to go get up the next morning, go pick up the girls, then go to a birthday party for our niece, and then come home. You made terrible life choices. I know. I made terrible life choices. I did. <laughs> we don't have a house cleaner. So it's not even like every week or every two weeks we have that, like, we have to tidy up. Right. Not that we're not tidying up, but you just don't have that sort of, you know, full... <laughs> the need and the yeah. reason to and then you're just like uh oh, i haven't tidied up our bedroom because it's like the last room that gets done yeah Ugh. <laughs> that's enough ending <laughs> uh so yeah uh, on that note let's jump into our stories because we're recording two episodes tonight and if you're gonna be driving home through freezing rain might be nice to get home around 10 11 o'clock before midnight you know <laughs> I've got the truck, and I don't really care, so I can be late for work. Ooh, true. <laughs> true, true I'm true. a terrible employee right now. <laughs> well, employee loyalty comes with longevity and loyalty in return, so. Uh, I think I went first last week, so it's your turn to yep. go first, so tell me a story. So, uh, this week's rabbit hole was caused by a few comments on the terrifying trailer for the movie Cats. Oh, yeah. I went and watched it after we talked about it. Burn! <laughs> Fuck, I cannot, like, we have, like, a lot of humanitarian crises happening at this point in the world. The fact that anyone spent money and that much money on that should be a crime. It should. The Hague should look into it at this point. What is Amal Clooney up to this week? Because that broad really needs to look at this war crime. It just needs to burn before it steals our soul. Like, yeah. <laughs> it looks awful. It does. So bad. So a few people have made comments along the lines of this movie is the way is a way that the furries will find validation. No, I have respect for furries. I don't think I have respect for anyone involved with this movie. Made for all the millennial furries out there, etc. But just to be clear, most of the comments were around the need to burn this movie before it takes our soul. Because Mm. yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So today I'm going to look at cats and furries. Oh, boy. Okay. So, Cats is on tour across Canada this season, and I have tickets to go see it in March. 
It's because it was part of the season package, and that was the only way I was getting Hamilton tickets. Again, you still don't have to go. I know. <laughs> Dan really doesn't want to. My mom was like, I'd really like to see cats. I'm like, well, if you come up around that date, I'm sure Dan will be happy to give you his ticket. <laughs> Bring a friend, and that friend can have that ticket. <laughs> I mean, sell them, scalp them, anything. Um, I love the theater, but I'm not a fan of the Lloyd, the Lord Lloyd Webber, which is what his, name, his official title is. <clears throat> he was in the House of Lords until he retired. Oh. Yeah, he has a Lloyd. He has a Lord? Lord, yeah. <clears throat> That's, like, it's just too many L's. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll probably go see it just because it's sort of one of those... Iconic. Yeah. Say you saw it sort of idea. It is the principle of why I read Twilight, because you can't make fun of something if you don't actually know what it is. Or a lot of those really bad but classic books that it's like, haven't you... Have you read... War and Peace. I have. It's actually pretty good. The the Catcher in the Rye, though. I have yeah. a rant locked and loaded. That and The Great Gatsby could fucking kiss my ass, the both of them. I have not read um, 100 Years of Solitude, but I l- read Love in the Time of Cholera, and that book wanted to make me gouge my eyes out. <laughs> so I cannot imagine that yeah. Solitude is much better. There's just some things that you can't figure out why they've become such cultural touchstones. <clears throat> like, there's hundreds of books that are better than that. Yeah. Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> Sparkly vampires, damn it. Oh, Love in the Time of Cholera was terrible. Um, Cats is a sung-through musical composed by Lloyd Webber and is based on the 1939 poetry collection called Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats by T.S. Eliot. Oh, there mm. it is. Opium. Got it. <laughs> It tells the story of a tribe of cats called the Jellicles, and the night they make the Jellicle choice, deciding which cat will ascend to the heaven side layer and come back to a new life. Opium. Before this week, I had no idea that that's what the plot of this musical was. You could have knocked me over with a feather because it makes no sense. (laughs) And I don't care enough to explore the fine details of my own. That's about as, like, descriptive as, as I could find it without going through... It, I, I even read the synopsis of the two acts, and that's as good as I'm going to get. <laughs> so hopefully Dan will also revisit this if he has to go see Cats with right. me, because he's going to do a lot of, I don't understand what's going on, and I'm going to have to be like, I don't understand either. I don't know, Andy. It sounds like you're going to have to give a lot of hand jobs and blow jobs to get him to go for that, and I don't know if it's worth it for you. It's not. <laughs> It's, there's no part of cats that. <laughs> God damn it, what, Lloyd Webber. Um, Lloyd Webber began setting Eliot's poems to music in 1977, and it opened to positive reviews at the New London Theatre in the West End in 1981, and then to mixed reviews at the Winter Garden Theatre on Broadway in 1982. It won numerous awards, including Best Musical at both, uh, with, in both the Lawrence Awards in London and the Tony Awards, despite its unusual premise, which deterred uh, investors initially. The musical turned out to be an unprecedented commercial success, with a worldwide gross of $3.5 billion by 2012. Why, though? I don't know. <laughs> like, if it wasn't a critical smash and... It seems really effing weird around the edges. Like, I don't know. Is this a political, like, I don't know, musical theater? Is it all political? Like, it's Andrew Lloyd Webber, so, so, like, we have to give him the award. Uh, But he wasn't Andrew Lloyd Webber then. Like, he was just some guy. Like, he was Andrew Lloyd Webber, but he wasn't, like, the. This was sort of the start. Um, Oh, this feels like something you do at the end of your career when you're trying to see if you can't fail upwards. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't know what possessed. Andrew Lloyd Webber to look at this collection of poetry by T.S. Eliot and go, you know what? That's going to make a great musical. The 70s? LSD. LSD. There you go. God, so many of our stories come back to drugs. It's the human Wild condition. Time. Wild time. Um, the London production ran for 21 years. Yeah, this is what I'm saying. And, like, Broadway, too, long run, too, right? Uh, with 8,949 performances, while the Broadway production ran for 18 years and did 7,485 performances, making Cats the longest-running musical in both theater districts for several years. 
As of 2019, it remains the sixth longest-running West End show and the fourth longest-running Broadway. Side note, the longest-running shows are as followed. London, it's Mousetrap. Yep. And Broadway, it's Phantom of the Opera. That's still on there? Uh, it's still the longest-running, and it's actually still running. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So, also, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, if uh, like what came first? Like, the cat or the phantom? Like I think cats came first, actually. Oh, man. You know what? White men. Just Jesus. Cat started the mega musical phenomenon, establishing Broadway as a global industry and directing its focus to big budget blockbusters as well as family and tourist friendly shows. So before this, like, it's sort of like every few, well, every decade about there's that one big show that mm-hmm. sort of changes. Like Rent was the 90s. Yeah. It took, because it had gone these bloated musicals, uh, like the Cats. Yeah. All those Andrew Lloyd Webbers, those 80s musicals. Like, I think of the 80s and I just think of big hair and big shoulder pads and everything was big. Yeah. Including musicals. And then 90s, Rent came out, stripped it all down, basic all sets. Grungy. Grungy. Yeah. Darker theme. More, well, not that Andrew Lloyd Webber's really, I mean, it's all darker themes, but. Um, and uh, then. Dude living in a basement, AIDS. That's true. Avita. <laughs> um. But sort of that stripped downness, yeah. and then um, in the early two thousands, you had those Mamma Mia's, those sort of again almost big flashy, but ripoffs of movies, not really great original concepts. Well, like I'm, I think of two thousands musical theater of like Spamalot and Book of Mormon, so like comedy. Yeah, comedy, and yeah. also like the Mamma Mia's. So like, yeah. and there's a Billy Joel one, and if you name a musician that had a big catalog, there's probably a musical. Yeah. Set to that. Tommy. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and then in the recent years, you've got Hamilton. Totally oh, different yeah. than anything else. So you've got those shows that sort of reset yeah. um, what theater is and brings new blood into it. And Cats was that. It sort of changed again that sort of um, the musical's profound but prolo polarizing influence also reshaped the aesthetics technology and the marketing of the medium like just again they put like there was tech used that wasn't used before they um marketed it wildly like you know you saw oh yeah that logo with the cat eyes yeah and like same thing with phantom same thing like instead of it being a niche thing to only theater all of a sudden everybody and their grandparents had heard of Generally, a show by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yeah. Right? Um, like, a lot of those sort of original shows, Carousel. Um, Did he do the book from Lee Mez, or am I losing my mind? No. But, so it's sort of like, uh, Lee Mez, I think, is around the same time. Um, but, like, a lot of people remember those Sondheims. Mm. And then you've got these mega <clears throat> musicals. Yeah. Uh, and as far as I can tell, the whole story is about a bunch of stray cats that form a community, and once a year, the old leader slash sage slash prophet... Slash Judy Dench, I assume? Yes. <laughs> Which, old... by the way, fucking Judy Dench, like, who does she owe money to? That's what I talk about! <laughs> I get into that! So, old Deuteronomy picks one cat who gets to go to the heavenside lair where they are reborn or just get to live a better life there. I'm not sure if this place is, like, heaven or a metaphor for reincarnation, or adoption of cats. Like, I'm just not sure. It sounds very Logan's Run, where, like, they all assume they're going to, like, the better place when they turn 30, but it's really just, like, death. Yeah, like, I'm not sure. I'll tell you if I get any more of a sense when I go see it. (laughs) If you go see it. (laughs) Um, but, But regardless, all the cats really want to be picked and really want to go there. Old Deuteronomy makes his pick at the jelly... Jellicle Ball, so the majority of the musical slash movie takes place there. The cast of this movie is so stacked, and I want to know. know why they all signed up. I, know. <laughs> I was watching the trailer. I was like, is that. Wait, no, but. Huh? Yeah, I go wait. through the whole cast. Oh. So, like, I can, I can see maybe Universal being able to leverage one or two stars yeah. to make this, but not this many. All of them. Yeah. So, here's the short list Dame Judy Dench, your favorite Jason Drello. Uh, our that's your favorite. Idris Elba is my favorite if we're talking this cast list. <laughs> uh, 
know you're the one I sent the clip to for Sesame Street, and you're all like, yeah. he could impregnate me. Well, yeah, but, like, I say that about a few people, but, like... Our favorite? Idris Elba. Idris Elba. Yeah, Idris Elba. <laughs> uh, Jennifer Hudson, Sir Ian McKellen. That Taylor. also really floored me when I saw that. Taylor Swift, Rebel Wilson, James Corbin. Okay, so that's on brand for him. Yeah, but still odd. Like, he's beyond that. Like, I could, I could see him needing to do this before Into the Woods, but post Into the Woods, post uh, riding, or the car musical, like, he doesn't need to do this. No, this but it I'm is on brand for him. It's on brand for him early career. And I can kind of see Ian McKellen doing this just for shits and giggles. I can see him and Judy Dench getting drunk one night and agreeing to do this together for shits and giggles, but then sobering up the next morning and being like, we're not doing this, are we? <laughs> I so I, I, it's the sobering up point that I'm wondering about. <laughs> uh, the others... Oh, and Taylor Swift. Uh, I've said her, so... Uh, the others, especially those who are trying to widen their options by proving they can act as well as sing, I'm not sure why they're... I'm not sure if this is the vehicle that's going to lie. <laughs> that uh, costume, that makeup, the reputation they're going to get. The CGI weird... Uncanny valley of it all. Oh, yeah, it's not good. <laughs> gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> Enough about cats in the movie that looks like a holy abomination. Because <laughs> it does. Yeah. Let's move on to furries or the furry fandom. <laughs> what I know about furries before this came from an old CSI episode. Might be where I first heard about them, too. And as you can guess, it's not much and not right. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, don't kink shame. <laughs> Uh, thanks for an article from CNN. I now know that I'm not alone in knowing absolutely nothing about this subculture. Oh, you meant the CSI content wasn't right. Yeah. I thought you meant the kink wasn't right. And no, I no. was like, watch it. We don't know who listens. No, no. I. <laughs> but the fact that CSI just explained it as a kink when it's really not. Like, yes, it's a kink for some people, yeah. but the mass majority of the subculture has nothing to do with sexual fantasy at all. You mean the CBS procedural didn't actually do its due diligence and research? Yes, I know. <laughs> what? <laughs> but again, that's all I know about furries <laughs> is that CSI episode. True. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so what did I learn? I learned that the furry community ha has a message for the rest of the world. Their culture is not about sex. In fact, people in the furry community are largely annoyed about how much their community has generally been portrayed by mainstream media outlets, such as CSI, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, Grissom and Catherine in that episode were tracking down a murderer who struck at a furry orgy. Mm hmm. Bailey, remember this, yeah. First, they, someone gave her Ipecac and she threw up, and then eventually someone murdered her. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what is the furry fandom? It's a huge subculture interested in anthropomorphic animal characters with human personalities and characteristics, including exhibiting human intelligence and facial expressions, speaking, walking on two legs, and wearing clothes. Which is about 90% of the kids' shows I watch right now. Yeah. Because that's 90% of kids' shows. <laughs> uh, so who is the furry fandom? Well, they cover a large age range and and socioeconomic uh, range, but 84% identify as male, 89% identify as white. There is a large continuing research project, five plus years at, and they have a website called furscience.com, hmm. run in conjunction with McEwen University in Alberta, Niagara County Community College, Texas A&M University, and a few others. They are tracking furry attitudes and backgrounds by asking them questions on surveys and doing work that through that way. They've actually published a lot of research. Yeah. It's a, quite a grab bag of schools, too. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's it's been, um, I think it's about six or seven years now that they've been just this. And doesn't I mean it's not like, I guess it's not overly labor intensive. It's a lot of surveys. Right. But they go to, it seems like they go to a lot of the. Con, like the fan cons and right. that sort of stuff to reach out uh, to their audience. But yeah, a definite grab bag. Um, so if you hear me quoting a percentage, uh, furscience.com is where I get from. Good to know. Um, so if you're saying, I'm really interested in 
anthropomorphic animal characters. Could I be a furry? You might. <laughs> if you are un are, have an unusual, powerful fascination with Bugs Bunny, have a furry alter ego, ego like to doodle original animal characters that reflect your arc, alter ego or persona, a.k.a. your fursome, <laughs> and love your animal character so much that you want to wear a costume of it, you might very well be a furry. What is the alternative? I know. <laughs> um, when most people think of furries, they picture people wearing all or part of an animal costume. The reality is uh, that only about 20% of the furry fandom wear own or wear a costume or fur suit. Huh. For those who do, putting on their costume sparks a, fas- a fascinating metamorphosis that they want... Uh, um, so basically, they really want to become a cartoon character in the real world. So then when they put on their costume, they become their alter egos. Hmm. Uh, longtime furry Joe Strike wrote a book called Furry Nation, and he does have a costume. When he puts it on, Strike transforms into a reptilian character he calls Comos. Cosmos. He becomes very sinister, very forceful, and very intimidating, says Strike. It's so much fun to become that other person. It's kind of mysterious. It's kind of a mysterious, alluring character. And some really women really take a shine to him, and it's a real blast. Whereas Joe in real life is very chill, very la- re- very relaxed, and very shy. Hmm. Um, as to any subculture, it do has its own unique terminology. Okay. For example, a gray muzzle is an older mer- member of the furry fandom. Brony, bronies are fans of the My Little Pony TV uh, toys and TVs and movie franchises. Which Bob's Burgers did an amazing riff off. <laughs> um, the Therian is someone who feels an intense spiritual identification with a non-human animal. And a baby fur is interested in age, play, and young or childlike characters. Milfurs are furries who are current or past members of the military. Oh. And not MILFs. Okay, because that's where my head went. That's where my head went when I first read it, too, yes. Here's one more. Furries who are into costumes are called fur suiters. And yes, Fursuit Friday is a real hashtag on social media. Oh my god, casual Fridays would be so much fun in that person's workplace. I know. I saw that and all I could think of was, like, How I Met Your Mother and like Barney's love of suiting up. Mm-hmm. And it takes on a slightly different connotation. Yeah, yeah, fur suit up. <laughs> uh, dancing is also big among fur suiters, with nightclubs getting in on the action, not just at cons or convention times, but for more than a year now, the Eagle Bolt Bar in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, has been hosting Suit Up Saturday, where 20 to 30 fur suiters show up every week. Not that I think there's anything wrong with this, but how sweaty they must get in their fursuits while dancing totally yeah. grosses me out. I mean, the local area dry cleaner must have a lot of questions come Monday morning. Or he just accepts the business and is very happy <laughs> and has no questions. <laughs> if he's smart, he has no questions. So what about that elephant in the room? And by that, I mean sexual fantasies. Well... You will find that for the majority of furries and their fursuiters, there's no sexual element to it. But like anything, some people do fetishize it because... We're humans. And you can find a fetish site for anything. Yeah. Pick a random topic and I bet you if you Google it, somebody gets hard about it. Like, (laughs) we're a strange species. (laughs) In the community is known as yiffing. Okay. I was not ready for that word. (laughs) And I do remember yiffing as a term from that CSI episode. Okay. Um, And yiffing can refer to anything from affectionate hugging or nuzzling to well doing it like animals. (laughs) Oh my god. Bloodhound gang. Yeah, 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 yeah. Also era appropriate for the CSI reference. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We're so Uh, old. (laughs) I know, we are so old. Uh, Not surprising, a lot of furries have a history of being bullied. Yeah. Researchers found that they reported significantly more bullying than the average person. According to FurScience.com, 61.7% of furries reported being bullied from the ages of 11 to 18. 
if you look at and compare it to nat the national rate in the US of 28% and the international average of 34 that is significantly higher. But I wonder if it's chicken or the egg. Well, sort of goes on to saying like the bull the bullying might explain why people gravitate towards yeah. that furry fandom and create an alternate ego, alter ego, sorry. Yeah. Um and research research shows that the sort of the community is very welcoming and open. Yeah. And it's predominantly male. Um predominantly white. So again, you get that sort of welcome community that maybe you were lacking before. Mm-hmm. Um, and research has shown that furries benefit from interaction with like-minded others in a recreational environment, which I think can be said to any group. Yeah. Um, once you find your tribe, yeah. especially once you get out of high school and you go to college and you find that there's a lot of people like you. Like, oh, yeah. Where your weirdness is what actually defines your excellenceness. Yeah, like, and you find other people who are either your brand of weird or complement your weird. Yeah. And then, like, anybody that I know, because I had a lot of trouble in high school, I was bullied. Um, and, uh, like, anybody that I knew, like, my younger cousins or anything, and I'm like, you just have to get through. It's just, like, four years. Do your time. Just do your time. <laughs> get out. <laughs> and, like, but college is so different. Yeah. Yeah. You like you literally because high school, especially when you're in a high small high school, it is a small cultural ecosystem, and you're stuck there. Even great high schools. And then whereas college, you don't have to like deal with like you can just oh, no, you can come in and out and just do your time there in class and get yeah. out and, and go you usually live your business elsewhere. Yeah, and you usually find people. It's a wider group of people, and you generally find those people who were assholes in high school just don't do that all that well in university. Or they're just so ignorant that they don't go to university. <laughs> exactly. So if you're a teenager and you're struggling and you've somehow found our podcast, it'll get better. Just just stick it out. I know it sucks. At the very least, you'll eventually hit legal drinking age and be able to rent a car and buy a house and it might still suck, but there are perks. <laughs> yeah. Um, Strike explains it this way. When they put on the fursuit... Uh, for fursuiters, anyway. They become someone else. It is very liberating. You sort of leave behind that human person with all those inhibitions and problems. You become this free spirit. You become someone else who you're not the rest of the time. So, I mean, it's kind of... That kind of makes me a little sad. That it reminds people... me a lot. Like, when I was doing the research for Tulpas, there was a, a bit of an overlap between these two communities, and I think it's the same. It's a coping mechanism. That we kind of develop for ourselves. Yeah. And so, yeah, if it works for you, great. But if it inhibits your ability to go out and interact with the world, that's when the coping mechanism becomes damaging. Yeah. Uh, So the furry fandom is going strong. And the estimates peg the fandom between 100,000 and 1 million people and growing. Uh, And while it's not likely to become mainstream, it's probably becoming more normalized the way other fandoms have. Think Star Trek, Star Wars. Doctor Who, like all of those Marvel comic book nerds aren't as much nerds as they used to be. Like, now it's... Well, they also have, like, RDJ and Chris Pratt and yes, yes, on their right. side. So what I'm hearing is we need, like, a Marvel comic universe-style movie franchise for these people. And then... Oh, well, I guess there's cats. <laughs> Bringing it around. So... <laughs> Um, the way you looked at your notes, I was like, damn it, I stepped on her <laughs> no, no, no. concluding thought. I had to laugh at this line. So this article that I found on CNN um, uh, was from 2018. So, the, so this person who I just referenced, Strike, said that if normalization comes via movies, sorry, Stratford, this is another person, hopes that technology will pave the way for it, making it cheaper and easier for furries to make Hollywood quality films. So I think uh, Cats might be that movie that, like, but I'm not going to say that it's, we're going to call it quality. It lives in the Uncanny Valley. It cannot just, be the one that breaks through for these people. Yeah, it's just, it's it might have been, but it's awful. Avatar might be closer for these yeah, that's people. True. Oh my god, it's <laughs> so bad. And it's a short story, but that's my story for the week. Awesome. Yeah. So yes, let's get your story. Okay. So I was casting around for topics and checked out all that's interesting.com website. Hmm. It's one of those things that I've like bookmarked to like go to if I ever like come up short and I was coming up short this week. So like my life science. 
Yes, exactly. I have a couple of ones, but yes, it's becoming the equivalent to your life science. So they had a listicle by Marco Margaritoff titled 11 real life horror stories that are way more terrifying than anything Hollywood could dream up. And I was like, there's got to be at least one thing in there that's going to spark my imagination. And, and it did. And one of those stories was about Alexander the Great, who was the inspiration for my story this week. So have you ever heard of taphophobia? No. Okay. Well, if you, summer for, if you suffer from it, you're not alone. It's the fear of being buried alive or <laughs> premature burial, if you're fancy. Oh. And that's what I'm talking about today. Yeah, that, that would be terrifying. <laughs> Is this a phobia of yours? Now that I know its name, yes. It's, I think it's a phobia of everybody's. Honestly, it? until I did the story, even after I did the story, it's not on my, like, I got so many other neuroses to worry about that this one hits the bottom of the list. But I think I've seen far too many, like, there was a whole plot line in CSI again, where Sarah gets buried alive. There's a, <laughs> was it Sarah or Nick Eds? Maybe both of them? Maybe. Because Sarah gets ma- um, buried by the miniature killer... You have far too much brain space dedicated to CBS procedurals. Because <laughs> I know so, your NCIS fascination as well. Yeah, but I haven't watched NCIS at all this year. Hmm. Um, we used to watch CSI, especially the first, I think, maybe two seasons. So Dan's roommates. Right. One of them had two seasons on DVD. Mm. We used to watch that, like, the Sex year that program. I lived, like, just constantly. So there's about two or three seasons that it's just burned into my memory because I've seen them <laughs> so many times. Well, that's about when it stopped being good, so I'll give it to you. Okay. Back to taphophobia. Look, the human body is just an unreliable meat sack. We just all have to acknowledge that fact. So mistakes have been made especially in a time before sophisticated medical techniques. In 1846, French doctor Eugène Bouchut was laughed at by colleagues when he suggested using this newfangled invention called the stethoscope to try and listen for a heartbeat in a suspected dead body. So basics, as of 1846, were still up in the air. (laughs) Before that crazy idea came around, doctors had a lot of fun ways to see if a patient was dead or faking it. And this list comes from Caitlin Doughty on LitHub, Um, Techniques included shoving needles under toenails or into the heart or stomach. Uh, I would rather that than the toenails. (laughs) God damn it. Uh, Slicing the feet with knives or burning them with red hot pokers. And I read on another website that those red hot pokers were shoved into rectums because (gasps) there's no way you're not waking up swinging from that experience. (laughs) True, 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 true. Smoke enemas for drowning victims were common. Uh, someone would literally blow smoke up the ass to see if you would warm up and make you breathe. <laughs> that's I'm that, sorry. That's where it comes from. <laughs> what? Yeah. Poor person had that job. What do you do? What'd you do today, sweetie? Well, I blew a, some smoke up somebody's ass. Equivalent of what did you do at your job today, sweetie? Well, I steamed somebody's vagina. That is true. That so. is true. <laughs> or... That article I sent you about people chugging sunlight Sunlight. through their anuses. I don't understand. White people. (laughs) Other tests to see if you're really dead. Burning the hand or chopping off a finger. Uh, And then writing, I am really dead on invisible ink, which is made from acetate of lead on a piece of paper. Then putting the paper over the corpse in question's face. Because according to the inventor of this method, if the body was putrefying, sulfur dioxide would be emitted thus revealing the message. It seems really dramatic and a really long process when you could just heat up a red hot poker. That's just me. <laughs> yeah, that seems very unnecessary. It's when a you lot. could just like it's a cut lot. them and see if yeah, yeah. if they're going to bleed. Another episode of CSI where they got a corpse back to the morgue and started cutting into him and he started bleeding. And they were like, oh, hey, this guy's still alive. Cool. I also remember that one. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, while it may sound like an unbelievable horror show, it did happen, and kind of a lot. In the 90s, the great debunkers Snopes.com weighed in and asked the question, have people been buried alive, and could it still happen? So first off, they confirmed that, in fact, it did happen. They posited that early hunter-slash-gatherer tribes may have been the first to do so. While out on hunting trips, if a member of the group was hurt, they'd be left in caves or other convenient and naturally forming shelters in hopes that, when better... They'd follow along and catch up with the group, but in reality, they were being placed in what would be their eventual tombs. Really depressing. Thanks, Snopes. 
But the Snopes article lists dozens of examples from history of people being buried alive, including a first century David Blaine type who agreed to be buried alive so he could emerge from his grave as a magic trick. Spoiler alerts, he did not. (laughs) Worst magician ever. Yeah. In the 19th century, William Tebb, a British air-quoting doctor, found evidence of 219 almost premature burials, 149 actual premature burials, and 10 cases of death by dissection when studying the fallout of epidemics like cholera and smallpox. So back to the CSI of it all. And the Burke and Hare of it all. Yeah, but they made sure those people were really dead before they gave them into the hospital. That's true, that's true. True, true, true. Yep. And these cases aren't relegated to history books. In 1994, 86-year-old Mildred Clark spent 90 minutes in a body bag at the morgue at the Albany Medical Center Hospital before an attendant noticed that the bag was moving, where she was breathing in the bag and pushing the, the bag up and down. She'd been found sprawled on her living room floor, cold and motionless, with no detectable heartbeat, breath, or other signs of life. She was also stiff as a board, so clearly they thought she was dead, took her into the morgue, and she wasn't. When they realized they got her out of the body bag, Lord bless them, uh, and she actually went on to live for another week after her initial visit to the morgue. But clearly there was something seriously wrong, and she died a week later. Like, for realsies this time. (laughs) They were like, we're checking her a lot. (laughs) Where's that red hot poker? <laughs> yeah. uh, as Snopes points out, though, premature burial isn't common anymore in cultures where embalming is common practice. Though, fun fact, it is not required in North America. So, I guess they really don't care what your condition you're in when you go into the ground. Which is a great, like, racket for the funeral industry to charge you all that money to do something you don't actually have to do. So, yeah. life hack kids just don't get embalmed. <laughs> What are they going to do, arrest you? (laughs) So, while not still common, it's something that people are still terrified of. So much so that in 1995, Italian casket makers released the newest in anti-dirt nap technology when they released a a $5,000 coffin. It is equipped with a call for help ability and a survival kit. The call for help ability is basically a function, a pager function. So you can hit your distress button and your really confused loved ones are going to get the weirdest text message ever. (laughs) What the fuck, you assholes? (laughs) Uh, These coffins are also fitted with a two-way microphone slash speaker to enable communication between the occupant and someone on the outside. And the survival kit includes items such as a flashlight, a small oxygen tank, a sensor to detect a person's heartbeat, and a heart stimulator. And unless you're Daniel Craig in a James Bond movie, I don't think that heart stimulator is going to do much good for you. But that's just me. If you have $5,000 kicking around, sure. Buy something that you're just going to get buried in. While high tech, this coffin is not the first to have been created in an attempt to avoid cases of premature burial. In 1868, the U.S. Patent Office issued one of its earliest coffin-related patents for a contraption that basically looked like a submarine. And I say that because there was the part where you put the body and then like a periscope-like thing that went up from the head of the coffin up onto the top side. Uh, in that extension, there would be a little bell that had a string running from the bell down to the dead person's hands so that they could pull it if they were in fact alive. Uh, and if you were feeling up to it, the periscope extension also included a ladder so you could crawl out of it uh, if bell ringing wasn't producing the immediate results you were hoping for. After a week, if no bells were tolled or no bodies appeared topside, the extension to the coffin would be removed and the burial completed. It's a Victorian. Yeah. (laughs) Development to that burial system came along in 1885. Same idea of the periscope extension with the bell attached, but this one included handy air vent capabilities. So you could, you know, breathe, which surprisingly was missing, I guess, from the last version. Uh, It also allowed those investigating creepy bell ringing in a cemetery to lower a light into your grave to figure out if you were really alive or playing possum when they buried you, I guess. Also, I don't want a candle like in my face (laughs) in a very enclosed area, but that's just me. I guess if you're buried alive, one's worse than the other. (laughs) I'll lose an eyebrow for that. (laughs) Uh, Technology took another leap forward in er, 1894. 
when a coffin was proposed that included a pipe that went from the corpse's body to a whistle above ground. If they started breathing, the whistle could be heard, and a nifty red flag would pop up, propelled by the breath, alerting the graveyard staff. Like, ding! I'm done! <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> like the turkey pop thing, for American listeners. <laughs> <clears throat> oh god although the fact that technology really took a leap forward what did you say 19 something I'm like, well, those are words 1894 not, yeah <laughs> not often said about things mm, especially not coffin related items there you go uh, assuming you were a giant tech nerd in 1904 you had the option of buying a closed circuit uh, closed signal enabled coffin if you woke up in your coffin you use the handy switch at hand which would close an electric circuit that opened an oxygen reservoir at the same time as signaling that you were alive and well and waiting for rescue. So the Steve Jobs of 1904 really went to town when he had that idea. <laughs> yep. But now let's truly skeeve out our taphophobiacs that are listening and talk about some cases of people who are buried alive. Ugh. Yeah. And let's start with the origin of this rabbit hole for me, and that is Alexander the Great. In case you did yourself a favor uh, and skip the Colin Farrell slash Angelina Jolie biopic about him, Alexander is renowned... Let's use that word biopic very loosely. loosely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alexander was renowned for having conquered the majority of the known world by the age of 30. He was a soldier and a hard partier, but he also built a reputation for himself as being semi-divine. So according to the famous Greek historian Plutarch, after a 24-hour drinking spree, Alexander came down with a fever and experienced extreme back pain, as if he was being stabbed in the back. Nothing to do with the 24 hours of hard drinking and sex, I'm going to assume. Yeah. Like, Buddy needed a glass of water. He was just really dehydrated. <laughs> so after these onset of symptoms, paralysis quickly followed, and Alexander lost the ability to speak, and then at age 32, he was pronounced dead. As you would expect following the death of the semi-divine, larger-than-life hero, his funeral rites were closely watched and written about, and miracles of miracles, his body didn't decompose and start, stink, start to stink until about six days after his death. So it was viewed as like, look at this divine miracle, he's here for his funeral, and he has not started to decompose because he wants to be part of the whole thing. Again, probably pickled. Uh, that could also be it. But... In February 2019, Dr. Catherine Hall of the University of Otago of New Zealand published an article that posited that Alexander was in fact suffering from Guillain-Barre syndrome and wasn't actually dead when they thought he was. That makes sense. So Guillain-Barre completely paralyzes a person and reduces breathing to infrequent and shallow draws of air, but leaves their mental faculties completely intact. Oh, God. If it was Guillain-Barre, and I'm not a fan of historical diagnoses, but it does fit... Alexander would have been alive for those six days and had attended his own funeral in the end, probably dying of dehydration more than anything else. Alive and cognizant of everything the entire time. Oh my god. That's... Like locked in syndrome style. <laughs> Buried in your own body. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, here's a story from Mental Floss. In 1822, a 40 year old German shoemaker was laid to rest, but there were questions about his death from the start. Although the shoemaker's family confirmed his passing, he looked dead, they said, no one could detect any stench or rigidity in his cadaver. Still, the funeral went on as planned, but as the gravediggers were dispersing the last shovelfuls of dirt onto the grave, they heard a knocking from below. Reversing the process and now removing the earth as quickly as possible, the gravediggers found the shoemaker moving inside his coffin. His arms were drawn upwards. He wasn't cold. And when an attending physician opened a vein, blood flowed all over his shroud. Over the course of three days, resuscitation attempts were made, but all efforts were fruitless. The shoemaker was declared dead once more and laid to rest for a second and final time. Man, mm. 1820s were a wild time. Uh, in 1891, on the other side of the Atlantic, Octavia Smith of Kentucky lived through the then common experience of losing a baby about four months after he was born. Infant mortality rates were a real bitch back then. Not surprisingly, Octavia slipped into a depression, which was compounded by an illness that doctors couldn't explain, and she eventually slipped into a coma. In May of 1891, Octavia was pronounced dead. It was early spring, but Kentucky that year was experiencing a heat wave, so burying Octavia was a top priority, as, embalm as embalming wasn't common at the time in that area. But then, 
So they put her in the ground as quick as possible. And then other people in the town where Octavia lived started following started following her into this coma-like sleep that included very shallow breathing, only to wake up a few days later. Turns out they had been bitten by the tsetse fly, also I believe a CSI plot at some point, yep. which explained all of the symptoms that Octavia had exhibited, and she got buried without having the chance to be woken up from the condition. At this point, Octavia's widow slash husband, question mark, had a panic attack and feared he had buried his wife prematurely and so rushed to have the coffin exhumed. Turns out he was right. He had fucked up, but it was now too late. Octavian's, Octavia's coffin had been airtight. <gasps> Once it had been exhumed, it was noted that the coffin lining had been shredded and Octavia's fingernails were bloody. And on her face, and this is going to be rough, was frozen a contorted shriek of terror. <sighs> Octavia was reburied. Her husband, in a perfect example of too little too late, erected a life-size statue of her above her grave and developed a severe case of taphophobia himself. Damn skippy. (laughs) Uh, Another one from Mental Floss, this time from 1915 in South Carolina. That year, a 30-year-old South Carolinian named Essie Dunbar suffered a fatal attack of epilepsy, or so everyone thought. After declaring her dead, doctors placed Dunbar's body in a coffin and scheduled her funeral for the next day so that her sister, who lived out of town, would still be able to pay respects. But Dunbar's sister didn't travel fast enough. She arrived only to see the last clods of dirt being thrown atop her sister's grave. This didn't sit well with Dunbar's sister, who wanted to see Essie one last time, so she ordered the body be removed. And when the coffin lid was opened, Essie sat up and smiled at all of those around her and went on to live for another 47 years. Thank God her sister was like, no, you assholes. Dig her back up. What did I say? I said, you waited. Yeah. You did not wait, and now you're going to have to do it again. Yeah. Thank God. Her sister must have been like, oh, my God. Yeah. How do you, like, you can't say no to your sister after that, I'm assuming. Like, anything they want, they get. Yeah. And she's like, no. And I'm like, remember that time? Yeah. I Where literally I saved your, saved your life. life. Yeah. I saved you from the horror of being buried alive. Oh, my God. <laughs> Ah, so here's one that's on every single list that I looked at of like weird buried alive stories. So in 1937, Angelo Hayes of France was unfortunately in a motorcycle accident where he crashed headfirst into a brick wall. Doctors couldn't find a pulse, so he was pronounced dead and quickly buried. So quickly, in fact, that even his parents were not allowed to see his disfigured body. Angelo's life insurance company got a report of these goings-on and suspected that something was afoot, so ordered he be exhumed for a more thorough autopsy. Two days after he had been buried, which was three days after he had been pronounced dead, Angelo was exhumed as part of the insurance investigation. And wouldn't you know it, upon inspecting the corpse, examiners found that it was still warm and that Angelo was in fact alive. (gasps) Thank God! The theory is that Angelo had been in a very deep coma, which slowed his breathing to almost nothing, and it was that shallow breathing that allowed him to stay alive while buried. Uh, And with care, Angelo made a full recovery. As he recovered and went on to live a full life, he even invented what became known as the security coffin, which had a radio transmitter, hi-fi cassette player, small oven, small refrigerator, and a toilet in it. Because guess what he was not going to be experiencing again in his lifetime? Cremation. I don't know, man. That's even like, that's like the whole thing of um, one of the James Bond movies. Or is it Ocean's Eleven? Somebody's getting cremated in Vegas and they shouldn't be and they're alive. And there's the whole like footage of like the fire starting. I think it's a James Bond. I think it's Sean Connery. Maybe. That's that wakes me up. I have more of a fear of <laughs> premature cremation than I do of pre- premature burial. <laughs> I just want, like, if I die before you, <laughs> and Dan, if you're listening, just really make sure I'm dead. Yeah. Like, oh, full autopsy, sure. whatever, just as long as, like, as long as they make sure that I am dead. The whole setup that, like, Napoleon has with, like, the coffin inside the coffin inside the coffin, like, that's what I want, by the way. Giant building around me. Like, everything. Go to the, go to the nines. But make sure I'm buried in pajamas, because I want to be comfortable, damn it. No bra. I've thought about this a lot. <laughs> she lies. Here she lies as she wished. <laughs> Tits pointing in two different directions. <laughs> we'll just we'll just level them off yeah. her face. <laughs> we put her on their side. <laughs> It'll be fine. 
So while looking for stories for this episode, a bunch I came across were examples of people being kidnapped and buried to either hide them while ransom was being arranged, which as you can imagine, usually doesn't go well, or to hide people during police investigations. Again, never a good story, so I'm not really going to talk about those. But there is one story, though, where the headline caught my attention, and we're going to dig into it. Aha! <laughs> Pun intended. Is it the bus? It is. <laughs> so, from Mental Floss again, uh, this is an article, this came from an article by Jake Rosen, uh, titled Buried Alive, the California School Bus Kidnapping of 1976. And I had never heard of this before I did this. Morbid did uh, oh. about four or five weeks ago. <clears throat> oh, damn. Yeah. Okay. Well, to our crossover listeners, I don't listen to Morbid. <laughs> I swear to God. <laughs> I thought I was being real original. <laughs> They're the damn only it. person that I know that I've done it, I okay. think. So, and I'm sure they do a better job because yeah, they do a whole like, like episode. On yeah, it. and I'm yeah. doing like five minutes on it. So. Yeah, so listen to them if you want more information. I'm sure. So, on Friday, July fifteenth, uh, nineteen seventy six, a bus full of children were heading home from the last day of a summer program at Dairyland Elementary School in Coachella, no, Couchilla, California. There were twenty six kids on board, ranging in age from five to fourteen. While trucking along, the bus driver noticed a white van was parked in the road with its hood up. The driver tried to go around the van at first, but then realized the guy in the van might actually need some help. So he stopped, and uh, before the driver could decide what to do, a man with pantyhose pulled over his face, legs hanging down like bunny ears, by the way, uh, pulled a gun and demanded to be led onto the bus. He forced the driver to the back of the bus, moved the kids out of the first few rows of seats, and was then joined by two other pantyhose-wearing men. The hijackers drove the bus to a bamboo thicket about 15 minutes away and ordered everyone off the bus and into two vans that were waiting, and then the bus was left behind. The men drove the bus to a rock quarry 11 hours away. (laughs) Fucking worst road trip ever. Uh, Without any bathroom breaks and without saying a single word to anyone on the bus. The kids and driver were then forced out of the vans and over to a hole in the ground with a ladder leading downwards. A moving van that had been buried in the dirt in the quarry, um, and there, a moving van had been buried there, and they were being forced into the empty space in the van via hatch in the van's roof. At the time, it was the largest mass scale kidnapping in the United States. The three men leading the kidnapping were Richard and James Schoenfeld, who were brothers, and their friend Fred Woods, who were all from wealthy families from the Bay Area and had met in high school. Though they came from wealthy families, they were a trio of fuck-ups, to say the least. <laughs> That's the understatement yeah. of the year. <laughs> For example, James uh, Schoenfeld worked as a busboy during college. No shame in that. Everyone's got to work their way through school. Uh, but his daddy bought him a Jag, and when he couldn't afford the insurance payments, he had to sell it. Like, that's on his father, too, because you don't buy him a Jag if he can't afford to actually run it. Uh, The trio tried real estate investments together, but ended up losing about $30,000 in 1970s dollars. They owed money to each other. They owed money to extended friends and family networks and were just really hard up on cash. None of them were able to support themselves. They also tried to make it big in the film industry, and they came up with the screenplay idea for The Perfect Crime, but then decided it would be easier to actually just commit that crime than to make a movie out of it. So that's how we end up. In the bus situation. <laughs> yes. At this time in California's history, the state had posted a billion dollar surplus. And so the Schoenfeld brothers and Woods figured the state would spare a measly $5 million in ransom for some kids. And it had to be kids because it was unlikely that they would put up a fight. Once the kids were in the moving van buried in the quarry, the kidnappers got a list of names, addresses, and phone numbers, and they collected small pieces of clothing from everyone, items that could be easily identified as proof of life for part of the ransom. Now that they had the info they needed to put out the ransom call, the trio pulled up the ladder that they had leading down into the van, dragged a steel plate over the opening, weighed it down with heavy tractor batteries, um, and then that was covered with plywood and dirt. Inside the van were a few mattresses and a bit of food and water, though not enough for the number of kids that they had. Uh, And though attempts were made to put ventilation fans in, these guys were dummies, and uh, most of them broke down pretty quickly. By then, it was 3.30 in the morning, and back in Chowchilla, the community was in a panic. So remember, this was the era of the Zodiac Killer, 
who, if you'll recall, made a very specific threat about killing children as they came bouncing off the school bus. <coughs> and the Zodiac Killer had still not been caught, and on a side note, never was. So there was a sheer panic that this was actually the Zodiac following through with one of his threats. The abandoned school bus was found at 7.30 that evening, the same day. But since there were no signs of violence at the scene, police couldn't figure out a way forward. Parents, as you could expect, were frantic and placed so many calls to each other and to the police that the local phone system was completely jammed. This made the Schoenenfeld brothers and Woods' plan to uh, put in a ransom call immediately impossible. They were unable to get through the local police with those demands. So what do you do when your plans aren't going well and you're running on adrenaline after about 24 hours? Well, according to these idiots, you take a nap, which is exactly what they did. <laughs> Meanwhile, the situation in the bus was deteriorating quickly. The dirt that had been used to cover the top of the van was creating structural integrity issues with the roof, and it was starting to sag. Temperatures in the van was about 100 degrees. Remember, it was summer in California. And they were going through a heat wave. They were going through a heat wave. They were in a metal oven, for lack of a better term, even though it was buried. It was still metal with multiple bodies in this very small space. So of course it got very hot. And of course the ventilation fans had failed or were failing. One of the older boys on the bus, Mike Marshall, decided to do something about it. And the driver who was still with them was worried a guard had been left behind who would kill them if they tried to escape. But Mike looked around and realized that dead was dead. It didn't matter how you got there. And at least with an escape attempt, there was a chance to live. So he really pushed for them to try to get out. Mike got some of the kids to help stack mattresses near the hatch and used the wooden slats from a box spring to push and leverage the steel plate over the hatch up and out. Uh, so they made it up to the top uh, by about 7.30 p.m. on Saturday, and they had been missing at that point for 27 hours. They ran to the quarry office where the guard on duty had been watching the news, so he knew exactly who they were and was very helpful very quickly. All 27, sorry, all 26 kids and the driver survived and were mostly physically unharmed. Figuring out who the kidnappers were wasn't the hardest thing in the world. No, it really wasn't. Because these guys were dummies. Uh, Ray, the bus driver, was put under hypnosis and was able to give cops a license plate number. So A plus for Ray on that one. Uh, Also, turns out that bus, the the vans that they'd use was part of a fleet that was owned by Woods' father. So in the quarry that was also owned by Woods's father. That's my next point. Also, the quarry owned by Woods's father. <laughs> also, uh, also the ransom note. Police found a draft of it in the Woods's home. So the men woke up from their nap uh, to realize that the kids had saved themselves and the cops were on to them immediately. So they did the only sensible thing and they ran. Richard Schoenfeld turned himself in within a week, though. His brother James was arrested after being recognized in Menlo Park. And Woods had fled to Vancouver, B.C., but was extradited back to California, lickety-split. They were each charged with kidnapping for ransom, kidnapping for bodily harm, and robbery. And they struck a deal to plead guilty for the kidnapping for ransom in order to avoid the robbery charges, but then pled not guilty to the kidnapping for bodily harm and decided to go to a jury trial. So they had a way out of it, but they didn't like the terminology, so decided to fight it. (laughs) They weren't that bright. No, no, they definitely were not. <laughs> uh, let's see. Because three of the kids had reported nosebleeds, nausea, and fainting during the kidnapping experience, the jury found them all guilty of kidnapping for bodily harm, and the mandatory sentence was life in prison. So each kidnapper got 27 life sentences for their crimes. But on appeal... It was decided that nosebleeds, nausea, and fainting weren't sufficient to prove the bodily harm aspect of the crime, which meant all three were at the stage where they could apply for parole. It took several tries, but the Schoenfeld brothers were eventually paroled by 2015. Uh, Woods remained in jail a little bit because of some disciplinary issues related to the time he had served. The state, citing the immense cost of housing criminals with a low recidivism odds, was supportive of the release, which is ironic given the crime was a result of a massive surplus in the state budget. And now they're being released because the state couldn't afford to actually keep them under lock and key. Uh, but it is America, so many of the kids got together to sue the Schoenfeld brothers for false imprisonment and intentional or reckless infliction of emotional distress, because as you may expect, many suffered from PTSD following their experiences. All of them did, pretty much. Yes. 
So, like I said, taphophobia has never been one of my fears. I have enough neuroses, so this doesn't even, like, pop on the radar, quite frankly. Um, but even after prepping the story, I don't think it's going to be. <laughs> it's not something, like, that uh, I, I, I can see why it's a fear for people. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, like, especially stories that I've read where people have been walled up back in the day. Yeah. Like... The, the, like, nuns and the... Yeah. Yes. For sure. Yes. Yeah. Mm, <laughs> that just terrifies me. But yeah, that's a story that truly is terrifying. What, the, the, the kidnapping one? Yeah. yeah. The morbid, they do a long, uh, a mini, but it's not mini, uh, on it and uh, go into great detail. And especially the, the kids, um, even to this day, they have yeah. PTSD. Um, so many of them were afraid of the dark for all their lives. Like their kids are now, um, having issues. They're having issues with their kids cause they are like total helicopter parents. Like they just right. cannot let them go. Right. Uh, it's just horrible. Like these jackasses ruined 26 lives, right? Oh, exponential that out to friends and family and yeah. children. And yeah. Like, um, the bus driver, um, was also credited with like, Oh, keeping everybody love, yeah. kept everybody calm, <clears throat> you know, they all pitched in, even the younger kids, so they're like, you know, we're either going to die here, we're going to die, we're going to die trying to get out. Yeah. Um, like, it took them a long time to get, like, the manhole cover moved and stuff, but, um, yeah, it's truly, so he ended up buying the bus. Yeah. Yeah, I read that. And it's now book. in a, um, museum. Yes. Yeah. And they have... All the, the survivors wrote notes on it to him. Oh. Yeah. So it's covered in little handwritten notes. They even have, like, a day that they celebrate him as a hero, like, the town. and Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. The article I read sounds like Mike really deserves the parade more than the driver. <laughs> I think they both did. Equally like, he so, was... Yeah. He was the oldest boy on the bus. He was so. oldest. He was 14. Um, um, Morbid does a lot about the two of their perspectives. Oh, um, there you go. You know, like how it was him and the driver. They were both like, you know, of course you're worried, but they were just, you know, we're going to do this. And they worked together with some of the older kids. But it was like everybody was helping this this team of children. We're just yeah. like, no, we're. Yeah. I cannot imagine, though, the whole uh, Zodiac fear. That whole, like, little kitties bouncing off the bus. Like, holy shit. But, like. Because, like, parents are already freaked out about the whole bus situation to start off with with their kids. And then to have an entire bus of them disappear. Jesus. Um, like, the youngest kid was five. Or four. Four. So, like, yeah. that's Elizabeth's age. Yeah. Like, that just... Not that my kids take the bus, but just... Yeah. Oh. Fun times! Fun times! <laughs> so that's our show for this week. If you'd like more information, head over to our website, which is www.rabbitholespodcast.com. There you can check out our show notes for the episode and uh, head over to the merch tab for the link to our Redbubble store and the support tab for the link to our Patreon page. If you like uh, our social media and you want to see what we're doing, a.k.a. Elise, until the end of next week, um... You can check us out on Twitter at Rabbit Holes Pod, Facebook at Rabbit Holes Podcast page, Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast. If you like what we are doing, yeah, <laughs> you can uh, email us or DM us on one of those um, mediums. And uh, if you want to tell us about a rabbit hole that you have fallen down or something that you would like us to do a bit of a deep dive on for you. Um, email us, let us know. We're happy to get an email from somebody, really. Other than SoundCloud letting us know they're charging my credit card 20 more bucks. <laughs> the RS feed. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it for this week. There's only one last thing to do, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.